Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit and graphic content, including discussions about prostitution, detailed descriptions of crime scenes, and references to drug use. Listener discretion is advised. When Larry Hicks, a 44-year-old retired cement mixer, decided to venture down to the seedy motel drive in Fresno, California, he certainly wasn't mixing with a professional crowd. In an area known for its dubious reputation, Hicks negotiated a price with a local escort and eased his truck into a secluded area, an abandoned lot strewn with discarded condoms, syringes, and used underwear. There, they would find themselves stumbling upon something shocking. Hidden behind a hulking piece of rusting farm equipment, the lifeless body of a scantily clad woman, brutally stabbed and bludgeoned, lay face up in the dirt. This woman was Jill Ann Weatherwax, an aspiring singer, socialite, and former Miss Hollywood. The grim discovery would rock the city of Fresno, and the subsequent three-month investigation would lead to a 25-year quest for answers. So who killed Jill Ann Weatherwax? I'm Faith Bernadette, and this is Drop Dad Gorgeous. It was the fall of 1970, and surely a time like no other. Marking the onset of the post-civil rights era, the debut of the Boeing 747 in commercial aviation and the former dissolution of the Beatles, a palpable transformation stirred within American culture. It was a chance to start anew, to embrace what would later be coined by renowned journalist Tom Wolfe as the Me Decade. Here, Americans could finally break free from the conflicts and societal shifts of the preceding decade and focus their attention on self-discovery. But for Joan Weatherwax in Fenton, Michigan, however, it was a chance to enjoy the fruits of what the last decade had brought to her, a successful pregnancy and a newborn baby named Jill Ann. Jill Ann Weatherwax was born on October 26, 1970. Her mother had been a former bathing suit model, with three children by a previous marriage, and two of them had already moved out after high school. The father, Jim Weatherwax, who was five years younger than his wife, was a former member of a Carnegie Hall folk group who had long since traded his musical aspirations for a more practical job at a plant in Fenton. Jill was a beautiful, vivacious child, according to her parents, and Jill delighted her father when she demonstrated musical talent at the age of two. Just after learning to talk, she wanted to sing. As Jill grew older, friends and family immediately noticed she was a talented performer. She performed folk and contemporary duets with her father and played the guitar and saxophone in a local country band. When she was 12, she started modeling and enrolling in classes at a prestigious dance school. She was a talented cheerleader and member of the track team. By junior year of high school, she was entering beauty pageants, many of which she won. From Miss Great Lakes to Miss Spring in the highly competitive Michigan Four Seasons pageant, to name a few. 
and by the time she was out of high school, she had secured a modeling contract with global cosmetic brand Revlon. Jill Ann graduated Fenton High in 1988 with a 3.0 GPA, and she soon received her cosmetology degree from Mott Community College and the Genesee Area Skill Center, after which she worked as a hairstylist. But despite her love for cosmetics, Jill knew she was destined to be a star. She continued modeling and catwalking for many agencies, traveling across the country to different fashion shows. Susan Arnold, a Michigan modeling agency owner, said, she was extremely talented. She had the modeling. She had the looks. It is hard to pick a talent where she excelled most. Eventually, Jill moved to Chicago in 1989, where she met a man who offered her a round-trip ticket to L.A. He told her that if she didn't like Hollywood, she could simply fly back. Jill enthusiastically took him up on the offer. After falling in love with the glitzy and glamorous lifestyles underneath the Hollywood sign, Jill uprooted her life and moved to Southern California to continue her pursuit of singing and modeling. She signed with a small agency using the stage name of Eve. In an interview with the Tri-County Times on May 1, 1994, she likened her voice to a mix between Whitney Houston and Janis Joplin. Eventually, her agent arranged a meeting with an old friend of his from the music business, Joe DiCarlo, a retired and vastly older man. Jill moved in with him, where their professional relationship quickly took a more romantic turn. For 19-year-old Jill, pursuing a relationship with a man several decades older wasn't all it was cracked up to be, and within a few months, she became frustrated that her music career wasn't progressing. According to Joe DiCarlo, Jill spent her time sitting around his apartment, writing song lyrics, but never seriously working on her career. Jill finally saw the writing on the wall, recalls DiCarlo, when he told her that he wasn't going to send her to someone and tell them she wants to be a singer when she wasn't even that good, he recounted. And then, he added, Ciro took over. In the summer of 1990, Jill Ann and DiCarlo had visited a restaurant that was owned by a man named Ciro Orsini. Ciro was a wealthy man in his 50s, from London, who owned a variety of prestigious clubs and restaurants in the Europe and United States. At the restaurant, DiCarlo introduced Jill to Ciro and asked if Jill could sing at his restaurant. Ciro Orsini proceeded to dazzle her, flashing cash and dropping names. Recounting the meeting in a 2001 interview about Jill, Ciro stated, I took one look at her and said, I want to marry that girl. After a successful initial performance by Jill in his California restaurant, she began to regularly sing for him. And by the end of 1990, Jill had left DiCarlo for Ciro. Jill's mother recalls a phone call with her daughter around this time, where Jill excitedly squealed about a new man on the other side of the line. Guess what? I met the most fantastic man. He's Mr. Hollywood. Almost overnight, Jill's life was transformed as Orsini made real the fantasy she'd carried with her from Michigan. He lavished gifts upon her, clothes, jewelry, cosmetic surgery, and he gave her the stage she wanted, letting her perform at his club almost nightly. He even moved her into his two-bedroom bachelor pad on Palm Avenue off Sunset Boulevard. During their six-year relationship, the couple ran in a very prominent social circle that included other young actors and musicians. They led a jet-setting life, meeting and partying with some of Hollywood's biggest stars. Sources close to her recall her dancing with actor Patrick Swayze, partying with Amanda Santi, 
singing with Van Morrison and dining with Scott Bio. She once even sang backup for Whitney Houston. Through this, Jill continued beauty pageants and in 1991 competed for Miss Hollywood, which had not been around for a decade but was resurrected by Ciro. The grand prize for the new Miss Hollywood? A record deal with Ciro's record label. To no one's surprise, Jill was crowned Miss Hollywood. While many raise questions about the contest's validity, Orsino still maintains to this day that Jill won fair and square. Despite resurrecting the pageant, sponsoring the prize, and buying the dress that Jill competed in, Jill was now Miss Hollywood. Even with the apparent glam, Orsini couldn't seem to secure the one thing Jill wanted most, a big and coveted recording contract. Carl Summers, a friend of Orsini and record producer, recounted in later years the struggle Orsini and Jill faced in this dilemma. If she's with Ciro, she's met the biggest and the best. If none of them have signed her, I don't think you want to. Ciro eventually closed down his California restaurant in 1991, and the socialite couple moved to London, where he owned a prestigious restaurant said to have been frequented by Princess Diana. The pair hoped that this change in environment would afford her new opportunities for her singing career, and for the next several months, she sang at his restaurants in Paris, London, and Istanbul. By the time she turned 21, she had recorded two albums, which Ciro financed the production of. Unfortunately, to the dismay of Jill Ann, both of the albums bombed, and Jill didn't find any interest from major labels in Europe. For the rest of 1992, Jill little by little began to lose her way, beginning with alcohol. She'd have a few drinks and she'd become another person, says Kenny Copland, a longtime Orsini fan who scouts models for Hustler magazine. She liked picking up girls, and sometimes while drinking, she'd get wild and do it at the bar. Several of her friends back home became worried that she might be an alcoholic. In late 1992, Jill found out she was pregnant. In January 1993, she had had an abortion, which Orsini persuaded her to have because, as he told her, a child would interfere with their career plans. After Jill's abortion, her glamorous life seemed to fall apart even more. She suffered what a close friend of hers described as a nervous breakdown. Jill turned to more drugs and alcohol, and her behavior became erratic. Soon after, Ciro began to get frustrated with her behavior and subsequently ended the relationship. He bought her a plane ticket back to Fenton, Michigan, and sent her on her way. Back home, Jill was diagnosed as bipolar, a treatable mental disorder marked by severe mood swings, and was given medication. Soon after, Orsini flew her back to London, where they attempted reconciliation. It did not last. He bought her a ticket back to Hollywood so she could work on her career, with the promise that he would marry her if she straightened her life out. He let her live in a condo where his nephew and a few of his friends currently resided and gave her a small allowance. During this period, Jill, looking to return to London, would make numerous pleading phone calls to Orsini. He told her she could not return to London until he was finished with his business affairs in the Middle East. In the meantime, he did what he could, keeping Jill on his bankroll and asking his friends to keep an eye out on her. Eventually, Jill landed a few gigs for adult magazines, 
but it was not enough to sustain her drug and alcohol habit. Jill fell into a bad crowd and eventually started stripping, allegedly to fund a methamphetamine addiction. As one friend recounted, she always kept a little bag of it in her purse to keep her awake for days on end. Anytime her alleged addiction was brought up to family, they refused to believe it, stating that the Jill they knew would never do what was claimed. By June 1994, Ciro and Jill had grown apart, and she moved to Oxford, California to live with her half-brother, Scott Millard. Millard had previously been thrown out of the Weatherwacks home for drugs and alcohol 20 years earlier. As one local said, Scott was the kind of guy who, if he came to see you at your garage, you'd keep him close, or he'd end up with your saw. At the time, Scott was sharing a place with his friend Harold Earl Kurseski, a carpenter who went by the name Butch and had his own run-ins with the law and various addiction issues. Scott and Butch were tight-knit bonding over their seedy hobbies and the fact that they both had troubled younger sisters who were singers. But Butch's sister, Belinda, would eventually kick her drug habit, change her name to Carlisle, and go on to find fame fronting the legendary all-female rock band, The Go-Go's. Jill, on the other hand, was not as fortunate. She found a job at a strip club, continued with her drinking, and was described as usually high. Allegations have been made that during her time at the club, she also began to do sex work. According to those who knew Jill in California, she bounced between Ventura County and Hollywood and ran with a fast-paced crowd. According to one friend, men used her as a trading card, while others said that she traded sexual favors for money. She was diagnosed by psychiatrists as totally disassociated, and she had feared that she was under constant surveillance. Some friends said that when she spoke, she looked down so that nobody could read her lips from afar. Soon, the once young and starry-eyed girl with dreams of becoming a global icon was roaming the streets of Oxnard, talking to herself and hallucinating. Judy Elwood, a bartender at a nearby club, says that on occasion, Jill would come in and cry for no apparent reason. That's when I could see the reality come through, she said. It was like her soul was reaching out for help. In May 16, 1997, Jill was arrested for the first time for possession of a controlled substance. She was placed on drug diversion for two years in order to receive treatment and contact the public health department for AIDS education classes. She failed to appear for a scheduled court date, and a few days after that, she was arrested again on December 12, 1997, for the same crime. She was then placed on probation. In early 1998, Jill's brother asked her to move out. Jill became a transient and crashed wherever she could. On February 6, 1998, Jill was arrested for a third time for public intoxication and spent the night in a county jail. After her release from jail, she became increasingly paranoid about the world around her. One of her male friends, Bennett, stated that she was convinced someone was trying to kill her. On March 20th, 1998, Jill hitchhiked from Oxford to Fresno for no apparent reason, and she didn't tell any of her friends and family about her trip, nor did she know anyone there. Hours after arriving in Fresno, Jill was arrested again for the last time for public intoxication. 
She was apparently so disoriented that she couldn't identify herself to police. Jill would spend the next few days in Fresno, allegedly doing sex work and squatting in abandoned houses. Everyone who saw her described her as a woman with only a small purse in her possession, laughing one minute and crying the next, and desperate to not be alone. On March 24, 1998, Jill was spotted at a convenience store in Fresno at 10.30 p.m. Shortly after, she called her parents, who recount that she sounded incoherent and paranoid. According to a few witnesses at the nearby Villa Motel, Jill asked to use the rooms for prostitution. This interaction was never proven, but continues to be heavily speculated. At 11 p.m., Jill met a man who was staying in the motel room. According to him, she asked him to pretend to be her pimp, and he agreed. Jill then went out on the town where she met three men, later described as mid-20s to 30s and possibly Hispanic. She propositioned them, and they followed her back to the Villa Motel. A little while later, Jill was seen by witnesses getting into a four-door gray or green Ford Tempo with the same three men. This would be the last time anyone saw or heard from Jill again. The next morning, about 12 hours later, Larry Hicks, a 44-year-old retired cement mixer, decided to venture down to the seedy motel drive in Fresno, California, to negotiate a meetup with one of the local sex workers in the area. After securing a deal, the sex worker shuffled into his car, and they eased his truck into an abandoned parking lot nearby. There, hidden behind a hulking piece of rusting farm equipment, the pair discovered the lifeless body of Jillian Weatherwax. She had been brutally stabbed 30 times in the back and torso, and bludgeoned beyond recognition. It would take an entire week for the Fresno County Police Department to positively identify her as Jillian from her fingerprints. Detective Al Murrieta, a 10-year veteran of homicide, had just returned to headquarters from the scene of Fresno's other overnight slaying when he got the call about a body behind the animal shelter. He would later lead the charge of the case. After Murrieta approached the body, which was clad in cut-off jeans, a leather jacket, a nail-fitting sweatshirt, and flaming yellow platform shoes, he placed her death at approximately midnight the night before. The investigators collected and preserved DNA from the scene, but late 1990s DNA testing was nowhere near advanced enough yet for it to have much use. Marietta will later state in a 2001 Times interview that all of Weatherwax's actions after she arrived there were substantiated up until about an hour before her death. There are conflicting reports about her toxicology results, with some saying she had alcohol in her system but no sign of any narcotics. Jill's sister Julie, on the other hand, maintains that she had no drugs, alcohol, or semen in her system at the time of death. For investigators, they only had two specific leads to go off of after her murder. The greener gray Ford Tempo she had been in that night, and the two eyewitnesses, a pimp and a sex worker, who she'd spoken to from the Villa Motel the night before. Unfortunately, nothing substantial came out of these conversations. They speculated she was killed by at least one of the men in the car, so they turned their efforts to locating the mysterious vehicle. Again, their efforts fell short. To this day, the three men in the Ford Tempo have never been identified. 
As of 2024, the Fresno Police Department has not publicly named any suspects in this case. A later attempt in recent years saw police adding a photo of Jill Ann to a collection of cold cases printed on decks of cards to be distributed to several local prisons. Inmates have been known to talk about a cold case if they believe there is a chance it could help their own case. But so far, nobody has come forward yet. And alas, it's the case of Jillane Weatherwax, an artifact on the Fresno County PD shelf, collecting dust and serving as a reminder of a life taken too soon. Despite offers of rewards and Weatherwax being the subject of various television shows, including Inside Edition and America's Most Wanted, as well as numerous magazine and newspaper articles, her case still remains a mystery. Jill's funeral was held on the 3rd of April, 1998, at Sharp Funeral Homes in Fenton, Michigan. Her father, Jim, played Amazing Grace on the saxophone and then finished by singing the lyrics. Over a hundred people packed into the church to pay their final respects to Jill. The attack on Jill had been so frenzied and brutal that she had to have a closed casket. Several spectators noticed Orsini, who had flown to Michigan to be in attendance, exhibiting what they considered unusual behavior. At the lunch preceding the funeral, Jill's high school friend, Jody Szymanski, noticed how Orsini moved about the room as though it was a party for him to mingle at. He even told patrons that Jill had spoken to him that morning from the spirit realm, letting him know that she was okay and that her killers would soon be found. He had also photographed the entirety of the event, posing with mourners and embracing Jill's casket. The photos were later gifted to Jill's family, bound in a heavy, professionally made album. Since her death, the Weatherwax family has never been the same. In 2006, Jill Ann's mother suffered a stroke and passed away without any answers. Jill's father fell into a deep depression after his wife's death, and four years after, he passed away too. A fellow contestant in beauty pageants, Sheree, recalled a time soon before her death where she had run into Jill at a grocery store. She says she recalls them embracing as if no time had passed. Many of Jill's friends, co-workers, and acquaintances have widely regarded Jill as a human being who touched many lives. She's described as having a caring smile and was always willing to give and share anything she could with those around her. Jill is laid to rest in Oakwood Cemetery in Fenton, Michigan, beside her parents. Fresno Police has over 500 unsolved homicide cases dating back to 1955, and an estimated 70 of those cases have potential of being solved with DNA and evidence testing. If you or someone you know has any information about Jill Ann Weatherwax, please reach out to the Fresno Police Department. Their information will be in the show notes for this episode. Additionally, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, know that there is help available. I've included helpful resources in the show notes for this episode. I'd like to dedicate this podcast episode to The Safe Project. 
The SAFE project was founded in November 2017 by Admiral James and Mary Winifield, following the loss of their 19-year-old son Jonathan to an accidental opioid overdose. They swiftly built the SAFE project team of experts who strive for meaningful action through their programs and lead efforts that are unifying, nonpartisan, and evidence-based. SAFE seeks to contribute in a tangible way to overcoming the addiction epidemic in the United States. To donate to SAFE or to learn more about the project, visit safeproject.us. All resources mentioned in this episode are available in the episode show notes. I am so thankful for everyone who tunes in and supports this show as a lot of work goes into creating this for you all. Be sure to follow Drop Dead Gorgeous on social media, which I've also linked in the show notes. This has been Faith with Drop Dead Gorgeous.